Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. This morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go to him and ask him for his help. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is living and active, that it can, uh, it's like a mirror held up to us to show us who we really are, but it also shows us who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so we pray this morning that you would reveal your truth to us, that you would write its eternal message on our hearts. And Father, we pray that, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you this morning. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, you know, one of the... Uh, a couple weeks ago when I preached, I opened talking about, uh, you know, Christmas TV specials and some of that, so I thought I would continue that theme and, and talk about something else. My my and growing up in my house, my mother she loves uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Okay, and so we like every version ever made of that we would you know have in our we'd be playing around Christmas time. And so my mom loved the George C. Scott version of, of A Christmas Carol, and I was partial to the Muppet Christmas Carol. Okay, that was really good, one, as you probably have guessed. Um, but you know, I realized I never really read this book, and so I sat down this week and and, and started reading a little bit of uh, Christmas Carol. And uh, you know, I was really sh- kind of surprised by the way the book began. I, um, I'd, I'd never uh, read it before, like I said. And so here's a, here's like the opening couple sentences of of uh, Christmas Carol. He said, Charles Dickens writes, "Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that." And a few paragraphs later, he writes. There is no doubt that Marley was dead. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I'm going to relate. And as you remember, you know, Jacob Marley was Scrooge's part, business partner, and he'd been dead seven years, and, you know, the ghost comes back and all that stuff. And, and, uh, but, but what's really fascinating to me is, is the way that Dickens sort of really emphasizes that. And he's like, look, if you don't understand that Marley's dead, if you don't really, if that doesn't hit home with you, then the story that I'm going to tell you is not going to seem wonderful. It's not going to, it's not going to have the intended effect, okay? And it really kind of made me think about, start thinking about Christianity a little bit. Right? If you really don't understand the incarnation, right? If you really don't understand what Christmas is all about, if you really don't understand that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, then, then all of the, the teachings of the Bible, all of the Christian ethics, all of the, the, the Christian living, none of that's going to make sense to you. Right? If you don't understand the gospel, if you don't understand that, that God became flesh and dwelt among us, if you don't understand the incarnation, then the rest of the stuff in the Bible is not really going to connect. It's not really going to have its intended effect. It's not going to seem wonderful to you. It's not going to make much sense to you. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we come to Philippians chapter 2, and we see that Paul is kind of writing about the church. He's kind of writing about the ways that, what, what the church ought to look like and how it ought to function in the early part of 
of chapter 2. And he kind of grounds that, he kind of backs that up by, by pointing us to the gospel, by pointing us to the incarnation and saying, look, if you want to understand kind of how the church ought to operate and, and the humility that you need as, as, as Christians to, to, to have a harmonious relationship in the church, if you really want to understand that, you've got to understand the gospel. You've got to understand the incarnation, how Jesus has humbled himself for us. And so, in other words, you know, Paul is sort of saying, like, look, humility is like the, the grease that kind of keeps the gears of the church running smoothly, okay? And, and in order to see that, in order to truly understand what true humility is, you've got to understand the, Christ, the gospel. You've got to understand the humility of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the humility of Christmas, and that is the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ when he put on flesh um, and, and came to earth, uh, the humility that he displayed in his incarnation. And so just two points this morning. First, we're going to see the purpose of humility, and second, we're going to see the promise of humility. I just want to warn you ahead of time, the, the first point is going to be really long. That's going to be the most of our time, and the second one's short. So don't be getting nervous, okay, if the first one seems like it's going on forever, okay? Uh, so the purpose of humility is, is what we'll look at first. So what is the purpose of humility? Well, the, the ultimate purpose of humility is to glorify God. Um, and I'm not just saying that sort of as a Christian cliche, that's actually, I think, in our, in our passage this morning. Um, if you'll notice with me, um, it's actually really providential that our, our catechism question this morning uh, referred to the humiliation, the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. That kind of splits his work into those two categories. Because we see that Paul does that in this passage. He talks about the humiliation of Christ and his exaltation. Um, and... You'll notice with me um, in verses 6 through 8, we see a description of Christ's humiliation, as, as theologians call, have come to call it. Uh, I'll read that again. It says in verse 6, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so when we talk about Christ's humiliation, we're referring to his coming to earth, his putting on flesh, his living, experiencing the pain of, of a, living in a fallen world, um, his, his taking the form of a servant, um, his dying a, a horrible death, even death on the cross, as Paul tells us here. That's what we talk about when we talk about the Christ's work, the, the humiliation, sort of half of his work. But there's also uh, his, his exaltation. There's another part of his work, which we usually refer to as his resurrection, his ascension, his uh, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, um, even now interceding for us, as Dr. Bob mentioned a moment ago, and also his second coming, his return. Those are all parts of his exaltation. That's the other part of his work, um, which he is still actively doing right now. Um, and we see, although Paul doesn't specifically mention any of those, he does refer to the exaltation of Christ. He does refer to his, glor his glory. We see that in verses 9 through 11. Let's look at that again. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So you'll notice that last phrase, to the glory of God the Father. And so all of Jesus' work, all of it, his humiliation, his exaltation, all of his work is ultimately to the glory of God the Father. It is to glorify God. And so all of our work is to be that way as well. As our Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the purpose, the ultimate purpose of our humility, the ultimate purpose of everything we do, is to give glory to God, to glorify him. 
Um, but what's the more immediate purpose of humility? Well, humility is not just sort of an end unto itself. What, what, is the, what role does humility sort of fulfill and serve in the Christian life? I think the purpose of humility is, the purpose of humility is to serve others. That's how I think it operates in the Christian life and in our, in our hearts. Humility is a kind of, uh, it's kind of like a fuel to proper Christian service, okay? Humility and service go hand in hand. They go together. Um, and so we see that actually in the work of Christ. Uh, why did Jesus come? Why did he put on flesh and, and come to earth? Um, well, he answers that for us directly in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, which I'll uh, read to you. He, he says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Um, if you will remember that passage, back in that passage in Matthew 20, you know, John and James, their mother, ha- has come to Jesus and said, Hey, will you let my sons, one sit on your right hand and one sit on your left hand in the, when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus says, well, hold on, let's, wait a second, that's, you know, that's, you don't know what you're asking, okay? And the other disciples kind of hear about this, the other ten, they get really upset, and they kind of, there starts this sort of bickering, and this kind of arguing about power and glory and authority and this kind of things. And Jesus finally kind of has to, has to call it, hey, cool it, guys, look, you, you don't understand the value, you still don't understand the value of my kingdom, the value system of my kingdom. You know, in my kingdom, it's not all about who's top dog, who's, who's uh, you know, the king of the hill, in, in Christ's kingdom, he even says this. He says, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, you must be servant to all. You must be servant to everyone. That's when he says, and even me, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And so uh, humility is the key, kind of the key to, the king, to Christ's kingdom. Um, you want to be great in his kingdom, you must be a servant. You must be humble. These things are connected. And that's why Jesus came. He came to serve. He came to be humble. Um, and we see that in our text as well this morning. Look with me back at verse 7. When it says, But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And so Jesus, uh, the whole point of his humility was to serve, was to serve, to serve us, uh, to redeem us, to save us, to reconcile us to God, to bridge this great chasm that stretched between our sin and the holiness of God, the throne of God. Um, that's how Jesus is serving us. Um, that's why he put on human form. That's why he died a painful and humiliating death, to glorify God and to serve others. And so in doing that, he provides an example for us, an example of humility, an example of service. Um, and that's sort of the whole point of this passage. If you look back at, at verse 5, that's how Paul starts this. He says, "...have this mind among yourselves." Um, in other words, this is the attitude, this attitude that Christ modeled for you, this, this mindset, this way of thinking that Christ displayed. This is the way that you're supposed to think. This is the attitude that you're supposed to have, this attitude of humility, this attitude of service to other people. Um, Jesus was humble, and if we're to be Christ's followers, if we're to follow him, then we're called to be humble as well. So, so what does that mean? What does that look like? What does humility look like? Let's, let's talk about that for a few minutes. I want to ask two quick questions. One, I want to ask, what is true humility? Okay, and the second, I want to ask, uh, how can humility help us serve others in our church and in our community? All right, and so we're going to try to get nitty-gritty. Let's get practical this morning. Uh, but first, let's ask, what is true humility? And maybe the, the, you know, it might be helpful to kind of strike some things off the list before we talk about what real humi- humility is. Um, so let's talk about what humility is not. Uh, you know, sometimes when we think about humility, we think about, um, you know, a person who, like, refuses compliments. You know, that, that's like one kind of way that we sometimes think about humility or talk about humility. You know, this when you try to, like, pay someone a compliment for something they've done, 
and they like argue with you about it. Oh no, no, no! It was you know you're like, hey, you did a great job on this thing. You did you you know that was really good. Oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't. You know, I remember when I was growing up, there was a, a girl that I was friends with, and she was my age, and she would sing a lot of solos in church and and things like that. And every time you would compliment her, like, oh, that was really great, she would argue with you. Oh, no, I, I sounded like a frog. I was terrible. You know, she would, you know, she would, like, refuse to take the compliment. And so you'd end up, you know, like, really trying to force your compliment. Oh, no, seriously, it was really good. It was really good. And so a lot of times when we kind of refuse compliments, that might sound like humility, but I'm not sure that's really what, that's, I'm not sure that's really humble because we end up sort of just lavishing more praise on this person. No, 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 seriously, it was so, so good. You were so great. Um, and so sometimes we think about that as humility, like not accepting a compliment. Oh, no, no, I can't accept a compliment. Um, but that's not really, I think, what biblical humility is. So what is humility? Well, Calvin's commentary on this passage is really helpful for us. Um, he makes a great distinction between Christ's humility and our humility, okay? Because it's not quite the same thing. He says this, he says, Christ's humility consisted in his abasing himself from the highest pinnacle of glory to the lowest estate. Our humility consists in refraining from exalting ourselves by a false estimation. So in other words, it's saying this, that, that Christ, you know, Christ, sort of his, his starting position is way up here, right? Christ is the second person of the, of the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. So he's way up here and he has lowered himself. You know, he had put on flesh and he lowered himself, took the form of a servant and, and came to earth. Um, and that's what his humility looks like. Um, you know, he, he sort of, uh, what, the passage even says that he, he emptied himself. And that's been sort of a controversial phrase throughout the history of the church, kind of discerning what that means. And that does not mean, when it says that Jesus emptied himself, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. It doesn't mean that he sort of removed his divine nature. What it means is he kind of sort of veiled his uh, his visible glory and majesty okay um he 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 appeared to be sort of he took on flesh and was a a normal sort of looking human man okay uh the one moment the one time in the gospels that we see sort of his true majesty and glory on display is as you know the mount of transfiguration right and jesus emits this light and the disciples just fall on their faces um and they're shocked and frightened um you know that's sort of the true glory of jesus but he veils that he sort of hides that um you know, he sort of removes that from himself while he was here on earth um, doing his ministry and walking among us. And so, you know, our passage also says that, you know, even though he was in the form of God, right, in verse 6, that though he was in the form of God, that is, though he is God, that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, in other words, even though Jesus is God, right, he's equal in power and glory to God the Father, yet he submitted himself um, he, he humbled himself and submitted himself to the to the will of God. He came to to earth to do the glory to do the work of God. Um, he came to do his Father's work. And so Jesus goes from great glory, right, the, the glory of heaven. That's where he started, and he lowers himself to being a poor carpenter's son in in, in Galilee, right? He he lowers himself uh, to being to experiencing hunger and thirst, to experiencing uh, you know fatigue, to to being tired, to experiencing uh, sorrow and, and to, to weep and to bleed, right? Those are the things that, that consist of Jesus' humility. He didn't have to do that stuff, but he did it for, for you and for me. 
Um, so on the other hand, what does our humility look like? That's Jesus' humility. What about ours? Well, we kind of do the opposite of Jesus. Our, our natural instinct, we're way down here, but we like to view ourselves as way up here, right? We like to think of ourselves as much greater and much better and much more talented and much you know, uh, smarter than we actually are. Um, and so we, we sort of, we almost like to believe that, that the world revolves around us, right? That, that we're in charge, that we're God almost. That's kind of uh, our temptation is to sort of view ourselves as the center of the universe um, and that everything revolves around us. Um, you know, we've got to win every argument, right? We've got to, you know, always be sort of uh, make sure that we're the smartest person in the room. We, we kind of struggle with those temptations sometimes. You know, you really get a sense of this if you watch um, these uh, singing competition TV shows. You know, I, I haven't watched one of these in a long time, but Shalane and I used to watch American Idol like years ago. And, and it was always really strange because, you know, in the opening weeks, they would have these people kind of auditioning who were just awful, awful singers, just terrible um, and but they they really thought that they were amazing. You know, they thought that they were going to be the next you know superstar, American Idol, whatever. And I mean, they could not carry a tune in a bucket. You know, and, and but, like the judges would tell them, like, look, I'm sorry, but you're just really a bad singer. And they would be so aghast and so offended. What are you me? Are you serious? Um, and, and so that kind of gives us. We all kind of do that, right? Um, not Maybe not with singing, but, but we all sort of like to think of ourselves as, as better than what we really are, as more talented, as, as smarter, as maybe as more righteous than what we really are. We like to always sort of um, puff ourselves up in our, in, our, in our worth, in our estimation of ourselves. And so humility for us is not about sort of uh, lowering ourselves, really. I mean, it is about that. But humility for us really starts with just kind of viewing ourselves accurately. Um, with just kind of seeing our, our shortcomings and our weaknesses clearly. Um, and to not sort of constantly be uh, puffing ourselves up with our own greatness and glory. But to be, uh, but to be in awe of God's greatness and glory. Um, to, see our, uh, to, to be in awe that he would love sinners like us. You know, to keep our lowly estate kind of ever before our eyes. That's sort of what, our, that's where our humility begins, by really seeing who we are, by seeing uh, that we are sinners, by seeing our weaknesses, our shortcomings. Um, you know, another way to, to describe humility is, is to say humility is like the practice of viewing other people as better than ourselves, or other people esteeming others higher than we esteem ourselves. You know, our natural assumption sometimes is that, you know, my time is more valuable than your time, okay? Um, if I'm in line at the bank, you know, and there's a long line of people. I'm the one who has the most pressing things that need to be done, right? I'm the one who has the most, I'm the one with the most important schedule here today. Come on, hurry this up. Um, that's kind of our natural, our natural setting sometimes, um, is to see our own wants and desires as more valuable than everyone else's in the room. Uh, to see our own, uh, to see ourselves as more important than others rather than to defer to others, rather than um, considering others more important than ourselves. Um, so viewing ourselves properly, seeing ourselves with all of our warts and, and flaws and sins and, and seeing our, our, how little we have really to be proud of, you know, to see ourselves truly as we are and to esteem other people who are made in God's image and who deserve patience and love, to see them uh, as more important than us. You know, that's really kind of what biblical, biblical humility um, sort of is what it looks like. Um, and so what does that look like in the church? That's the second question I want to ask. What does that look like in the church? Well, Paul actually gives us a very good description in the early part of chapter 2 here. And so <clears throat> here Paul is describing kind of what the church ought to look like, what the church ought to function like. And let's look, read with me uh, Philippians chapter 2. Let's just read verses 1 through 4 here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he kind of, that's the passage that leads right into our passage about, uh, he gives the example of Christ's humility. And so just notice a couple of quick things that he describes here, right? What, what is the church, to, how is the church to behave? What is the church to look like? Well, to be of the same mind, right? We're to be in agreement on, on a lot of issues. And agreement should be something we are constantly striving for and should be hopefully something that's relatively easy for us to, to achieve. Um, we ought to be having the same love. <clears throat> this means a shared love for Christ, but also a shared love for one another, a love for, for each other as uh, members of the household of God. Uh, we're also to be in full accord and of one mind. Again, sort of just describing our agreement. Our, you know, we're on the same page on a lot of things. Uh, he says we're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So we're not to exploit people. We're not to manipulate people. We're not to uh, you know, run a power play or try to do things for our own, seek our own personal gain. Um, he also says we're to count others more significant than ourselves. Uh, so we're to be other-centered rather than self-centered. We're to be other, focused on, on serving others rather than serving ourselves. And finally, he says, look not, only to, look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we're to, you know, seek the interests of others just as fervently as we would seek our own interests, right? We're not to, you know, if my interests and your interests sort of stand in, in opposition to each other, I shouldn't just bulldoze you over and try to get what I want, right? That's not, uh, that's not how the, the church should operate. And if you think to like a lot of the church, you know, we've all heard about church splits and things like that. If you think back on a lot of those stories that you've heard you know, you end up, there ends up always at the center of it things being, you know, one person or several people who their, their agenda has become a priority, right? It's kind of a no, you know, my way or the highway kind of mentality. That's always kind of at the center of a lot of church conflicts or, or they have this hobby horse or this pet peeve that just sort of takes over everything. Um, and they kind of push that through. They'd rather win the argument than reach a compromise, um, than, than show love to their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's really a heartbreaking thing when we see that in the church. And so if everyone in the church were to have kind of the mind of Christ, you know, this desire to seek the interests of others before our own, this desire to serve others rather than in love rather than to serve ourselves, to be quick to listen, to be slow to speak, as James says, uh, to really seek to understand one another, I think, you know, so many of our church conflicts would disappear um, if, that was the, if, we, if we truly sought to have the mind of Christ, if we sought to be humble in the way that Jesus was humble. Now, humility doesn't mean that you just resign yourself to, like, losing every battle, okay? It doesn't mean that you just roll over and let people kind of walk over you. That's not what humility is either, because sometimes there's battles that are certainly worth fighting, right? When the, when the purity of the church, when the glory of Christ, when those things are on the, on the, on the line, there are, those are battles that are worth having. Those are battles that are worth fighting. But when we do so, uh, we're to, it just means we're to compose ourselves. Our words and our actions are to be composed according to the example of Christ in love and hum- in humility. Um, so let's talk about one more application here. So we've seen, you know, how humility can help us interact in the church. How, what about in our in our homes, in our communities? How can the, humi- the mind of Christ? How can the humility that Christ displayed uh, make a difference in, in our in our neighborhoods? You know, I would I would point you to this book that I, I read um, earlier this year called The Art of Neighboring. It's written by two pastors, Jay Patak and Dave Runyon, uh, written by these two pastors in Colorado, and I just read this book um, about how to love your neighbors, okay? How to be a good neighbor. And they, they made a good point. They talk about, you know, when, when Jesus talks about the second greatest commandment, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. You know, who do we often define as our neighbors? We often think about, well, the people at my church, you know, my friends or my neighbors, you know, the people, uh, you know, we, the people um, at work and different things like that. But he, the people that we often kind of leave off the list are our actual neighbors, you know, the, the people who live down the street from us. 
And they proved this point by using these statistics from the survey that they were like, you know, they did a survey where they pulled a lot of Americans. See if you, who can, you know, can you name the near, your nearest eight neighbors? Um, and for some of you who live out in the country, that's like miles and miles of, of road between you. But, uh, but for those of us who, you know, if you live kind of in a neighborhood, you know, you have eight nearby neighbors. You know, can you name your nearest eight neighbors? And only 10% of people could name their nearest eight neighbors. And it was like, can you name one thing that you know about each of these neighbors? You know, what their profession is or something, they, one of their hobbies or something. And only 3% could do that. And so that just shows that there's, you know, we really don't get to know our neighbors very well, but these are the people who are kind of right there, sort of these possibly great ministry opportunities, right literally in our own backyard waiting for us. Um, <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, why is that? Why is that the case? Well, because it, it can be awkward, right? We don't want to, you don't want to go, you don't want to be a nuisance to someone. You don't want to pester somebody. You don't want to go knock on the door and, and get risk embarrassment or, or rejection, you know, if they, if they think that you're sort of strange for, uh, for trying to get to know them. Um, but what if we took this passage, this, the, the passage, Philippians 2 passage, what if we took that and let that guide sort of how we live in our communities, how we live in our, in our neighborhoods, um, you know, what if we left our comfort zone? You know, Jesus left the comfort of his glory in heaven and came to earth and humbled himself and took the role of a servant. What if we took that same mind, that same attitude? What would that look like? Well, perhaps, you know, you would bake something for a neighbor and go to their house and introduce yourself and give them a gift. Or perhaps you would invite them over to your house for dinner. Perhaps you would offer to help them rake the leaves or you see them cleaning their gutters and offer to give them a hand. Or perhaps you just, you know, walking down the street, you see someone out in their yard or someone walking their dog and you just introduce yourself and try to start a relationship with them, start to get to know them. Um, you know, because as Christians, we're called to carry the good news of the gospel um, to those in our neighborhoods and to those across the world. Um, but often we have to kind of earn the right to speak into someone's life. We have to earn that, that privilege. Um, and so the way we do that is by, as we live alongside people, to show that we love them, to show that we care about them, uh, to show that we're eager to serve them in love and in joy. And so here's a helpful question. If you're thinking about, okay, how can I serve people in my church? How can I serve people in my community, my neighborhood? You know, a helpful question to ask is this, is what would be good news to this person today? You know, what, what would be good news to them right now? You know, uh, what do they need right now? Um, you know, you may experience resistance if you try to serve people, if you try to get to know people. Um, you may experience rejection, uh, but so did Jesus. Uh, but we're to keep praying for people. We're going to keep trying. We're to you know keep looking for these ways to serve them, for these ways to uh, these ways to break down those those walls and, and to serve people. Um, so the purpose of our humility is to be a servant to others, just as Christ uh, was a servant when He came to Earth for us. To perf- when He when He perfectly kept the law that we couldn't keep, when He died the death, the awful death that we deserved. Um, so Christmas is all about the incarnation. Jesus put on flesh. He came to Earth not to be served, but to serve others. Uh, and so right now, I guarantee there, there is someone in your life, um, maybe at work, maybe in your, on your street, maybe in the church, there is someone in your life who desperately needs to be served, who desperately needs uh, to, be, to be served and loved in, in humility. Um, and you know, I would encourage you this week, I would challenge you, in fact, uh, maybe this person is, is afraid to ask, maybe they don't know who to ask, but I would challenge you. Uh, to seek someone out, to seek someone out that you could serve this week, that you could serve in humility and enjoy the way Jesus did. So that's the purpose of our humility, to serve others. And Jesus did that perfectly, and he calls us to follow him. So next let's look at the, our final point, the promise of humility. 
So uh, we'll look at this very briefly. Um, you know, perhaps you're listening to this this morning. You're like, man, I I wish I could be humble like that. I wish I could be a servant like that. Um, I, I know how you feel because when I was writing this sermon, I was like, man, I wish I could be humble like that. I wish I could be a servant like that. Um, it's kind of hard, right? It's it's a hard. It's it's not an easy thing to to uh, humble yourself to to serve others that way. Um, and I don't want to just sort of throw this huge command on you and say, okay, Jesus was humble, so you go be humble too. Good luck. You know, I don't want to just send you out with that. That wouldn't be very, that would be pretty discouraging. Um, but I want to, to the, there is something really encouraging in this passage, and that's the, there's a promise for humility. There's a promise for us for humility. The promise is this, that this ability to serve others, this ability to be humble, to have this humility, to have this mind of Christ, this ability is, it can be yours, right? It's available to us. If you are walking with Jesus, if you are trusting in him, then this ability to serve others in humility is available to you. Um, Jesus provides us with an example of humility. Uh, he also provides us with a motivation for humility. We see how much he's done for us, and we want to obey him and follow his example. Um, but he also provides us with the power for humility. And, and look with me at verse, back at verse 5. Uh, Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So if you are connected to Christ, if you are, if you are in a relationship with him, if you are resting in him and trusting in him, uh, if you are in union with him, as we sometimes say, then this mindset is available to you. Now, your translation of verse 5 might be a little different. I was looking at some various translations when I was getting ready for this. The ESV, which I just read, says that um, this mind, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Not, some of the other translations don't, don't have that exact wording. But I think the principle is still here. That Paul is saying, like, Paul is saying, look, this is the mindset that you're to have. This is not something that's natural to us. This is not something that sort of comes to us innately. But this is something that we must find in Jesus. This is something that comes to us from following him, uh, from, from his example. From, this is something that comes to us from his grace. It comes to us from the power of the Holy Spirit within us. So Jesus is not only our example of humility, he's also our source of humility. And, you know, following Jesus changes us. It makes us different people. Uh, it sanctifies us. It makes us more patient and more loving. It makes us more humble. It's not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens in a week or in a year. But over a lifetime of following Jesus, uh, this process of sanctification takes place. We are slowly becoming more like him. We're looking more and more like Jesus. Uh, and that's a, that's a wonderful and beautiful thing. And so following Jesus makes us more humble because we have his example ever before us in the gospel. But also because we are being in union with him, being connected to him, makes us humble. Because over and over again, we see our own weaknesses. We see our, our shortcomings. We see our struggles. We're constantly reminded uh, of, our, of our fallen uh, state, our fallen nature. Um, and we constantly see our need for Jesus, our need for the gospel. And so we cling to his cross because without the cross, there is no hope for us. There is no salvation for us apart from that. So if we want to be humble, if you want to be a joyful servant, look to Jesus. Ask him for help. Uh, pray for a humble heart. Look for opportunities to serve others in your home, in your workplace, in the church, and in your neighborhood. The promise of humility is that the mind of Christ, this, this humility of Christ, you can't keep it perfectly the way he did, of course, but this is available to you. This is right there. If you're following him, it's right there for you to take it. To take. Uh, so this week, um, we, we got a chance to spend a couple days in Tennessee to see my family. Uh, and uh, for Christmas, it was really a good trip. We, it was a lot of fun. Addie Pearl is uh, our daughter's almost three, and so this was like the first Christmas she was really into it, and it was a lot of fun. And so yesterday morning, we're leaving Tennessee, packing up the van, and say, "Okay, Addie Pearl, you ready to go home?" 
And she said, no, 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 I want to stay at Boppy's house, which my mother is called, she calls my mother Boppy. That's her, that's her grandmother name. I want to stay at Boppy's house. I want to stay at Boppy's house. And, you know, there, there's this real sense in which, like, you could tell Addie, she didn't want all the festivities to end. There's all these parties and, and relatives and cousins and grandparents and all these different things and, and you know, presents and all the M&Ms that she could ever want to eat, right? Uh, there's all these things that she, 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 didn't want to, she didn't want to end. She didn't want this, she didn't want to go back to the, sort of the normal routine, right? Um, and I think we can all, you know, sympathize with that a little bit. I mean, on one hand, when Christmas is over, we're kind of like, whew, you know, it's, it's time to rest, right? That's, I'm worn out. But, but on the other hand, it's always kind of sad to take down the decorations and to, you know, put the tree in the attic or whatever, you know, to, to, to take down the stuff. It's, Christmas is always such a special time, such a fun time. And so it can be kind of sad uh, when it's over and to go back to sort of the normal routine of life, right? And we start counting down the days until next Christmas, which 361 days if you're keeping track, okay? Uh, but, you know, just because the presents and the food are gone, just because the, the wreaths are put away, that doesn't mean that the spirit of Christmas can't remain with us every day, right? Because the real spirit of Christmas which Jesus models perfectly for us, is humility, right? That's the real sort of attitude of Christmas, if we were to, if we were to uh, name an attitude. You know, it's real nitty-gritty humility, the kind that looks like service. It looks like service that it might cost you time, it might cost you money, it might cost you convenience and comfort, um, just like it costs Jesus. Um, Christmas is a reminder that someone loved you enough uh, to serve you in humility, even to the point of dying on a cross for you. Um, it's also a reminder that we are to, to follow that example, that we're to serve others in, in humility as well. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he calls us to serve others as well, to be humble servants. Because that's the real spirit of Christmas, the attitude of Christmas, the mindset of Christmas. So may the Lord bless our church and our homes and our community with such humility and make us better servants this year. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the humility of Jesus. We thank you that he was willing to humble himself, to take the form of a servant, to die uh, the, death, uh, the death that uh, many criminals received in his day, this shameful and humiliating death that we so deserved. And the fact that he uh, has, has modeled this humility for us and he calls us to follow in his footsteps. And Lord, we know we can't do this on our own strength. And so we ask you uh, to please give us humility. Please help us to be servants. Um, help us to serve others in our church, in our homes, in our communities, in our neighborhoods. And help us to do that this week. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.